Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And today's moment is from the cantata BWV 105, Herr, geh nicht ins Gericht mit deinem Knecht. In 2013, conductor John Elliott Gardner released the book Bach, Music in the Castle of Heaven. It's a sort of biographical summary of Bach's life and music, written by Gardner, who is one of the leading conductors of our time of Bach. He has this to say about this cantata and ones like it. Although Bach is habitually required to deal with such towering universal themes as eternity, sin, and death, he shows he is also interested in the flickers of doubt and the daily tribulations of every individual, recognizing that small lives do not seem small to the people who live them. This comes to the surface in a work like BWV 105, in which the penitent servant rues the error of my soul. Bach turns to a device a commonplace Baroque representation of anxiety, requiring his string players to make pulsated reiterations by twos or fours under a single bow stroke, a technique sometimes called bow vibrato, and he uses it astutely in three of the cantata's six movements. It might have taken him nine or ten Sundays in his first Leipzig cantata year to get fully into his stride and develop these elaborate contrapuntal choruses. But from this point on, there is no turning back. Bach had set out to develop a new cantata style in Leipzig, distinct from the works he had written earlier. There are signs here of the way Bach was already thinking ahead to Passiontide. The two choruses, revealing features we associate with the opening tableau of the John Passion, So Gardner is painting a picture of, a, of this particular moment in Bach's life in 1723. He had recently begun work in Leipzig, and his mature cantata style that he will carry for the rest of his life is being formed at this time. And in that style, he is learning to express deep anxiety and anguish by focusing on the human rather than the divine and our anguish and plight. Our first words, which are from Psalm 143, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. This moment of Bach is a suggestion from Eliezer, who last year gave us a wonderful suggestion of Cantata 21, which we spent a few episodes on. There's a similarity to that one here. And Eliezer says, the choir in this part begs God to disregard the sins of men, for no one is ever righteous before the ultimate justice of God. Bach composed this text in the atmosphere of the approaching doomsday, as the Netherlands Bach Society performance so masterfully illustrates. 
and Eliezer especially appreciates the employment of soloists during the choir's first entry. It gives the whole part such an ethereal quality. Hmm. He finds the first bass singer entrance to be the most moving moment for him in this chorus. Somehow it feels that the first two voices that entered with the word hair did so offbeat, and therefore the bass, while landing on its first low note, brings the music to some sort of conclusion, or landing, even though it is just the beginning of the piece. He also mentions that the choir being placed in front of the orchestra is an uncommon but historically accurate decision that really makes a difference. Yeah, they do that quite a bit. So now let's hear that moment where the chorus enters and pay attention to the harmony and where things sound like they're supposed to be landing and instead what happens. Didn't it sound like they came in early? It did. I love that so much. It sounded like the tenor and alto came in one and two or one beats early. Yeah, let's explore why. There's a reason it sounded early, and that's because the cadence, we're used to the cadence at the end of the opening introduction, instrumental introduction, to wind down right on the beat it winds down to for the choir to enter there, or maybe even slightly after. Yeah, the first part of the chorus usually enters on the beat that the instrumental introduction closes on. And here, they entered two beats too early, and then the bass voice, as Eliezer mentions, feels like it's landing at the right time. But it's really spread out, and the notes the notes don't go together with the other parts because they are linear according to their own part. They don't make a chord together. The first tenor note we hear is D, and then we hear alto A, G from the basses. It only makes sense after they start singing more words. But they came in early. <laughs> I mean, don't you think, Alex, that if you heard a amateur chorus attempting this cantata and you walked in on a rehearsal and you heard them here, you would think that this was a mistake, like they, they came in early? Yeah, except for the fact that it lines up with the harmony. But it does. Yeah, it's it's not a mistake, of course. It's very it, much it also, deliberate. And also the way that Eliezer talked about how the bass entrance was really satisfying because it felt like the right, like it landed in the right spot, you know. That's because the bass has the tonic pitch. It just really hammers that home. And they, every voice enters on one beat of this measure, right? And so they're, and it's on the word hair, which means Lord. And in typical Bach fashion, these aren't just like entrances on different beats for no reason. These are the beginning of imitative phrases. So if you listen to one on its own, you listen to what each part is doing, one part on its own specifically, it will be the same melodic shape. It'll be the word her, followed by a beat rest, followed by the words like it's going to just be in, in time. Everything is one beat separated, so by the time it's all happening, it becomes a little bit too hard to follow everything in the same way all his fugal stuff is. But if you follow one voice, then you can just follow it all the way through and you can see how they interact and interlock. Their, their staggered entries come across as like almost like tripping over each other to get that prayer in first. Like, Lord, 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 enter not into judgment with thy servant, me and me and me and me too, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. 
I will not, neither will I, neither will I, neither will I. Hmm. Just overlapping. And Bach overlaps, I mean, that texture, that contrapuntal texture that happens all the time. But what makes this one a little different is those early two entrances, which almost seem to trip over themselves getting to the... Yeah. It's almost like rushing the doors when a store opens on a sale. Yeah, Black Friday. Yeah, because because the doors are going to open when that when that G chord hits. We finally arrive at a cadence. That's the time the choir was supposed to come in. And the people are opening those doors at 7 a.m. But then here are two people. There's a whole crowd of people coming, but two people get in right at 6.59. Yeah because they can't wait and they swing open the door and trample the poor the poor boys yeah and that's the desperation that i think is coming across here with Bach's contrapuntal writing Yeah, and that's also the desperation. He paints that in multiple ways, right? In the introduction, there's this, like, those pleading dun, 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 things in the first violin, oboe one, and, and horn part. And you also get some suspensions across the middle of the bar or across the bar line, like he likes to do, that just pull over, and then they resolve. And those are all pleading motifs that he uses in his music. Yeah. And there's also the heartbeat thing in the bass. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. And there are pairs of notes frequently, which are slurred together in the manuscript, so they are supposed to be connected like heartbeats like that. And the way they bow, the string players, the violins that you can see in the recording very clearly, sort of stabbing down bows that are really accented. So if we connect this first movement to the final chorale, the sixth movement, we can see how Bach pulls the structure together using these same motifs. I love that final chorale because he does he does this amazing thing, which I've never seen in a Bach cantata. I wonder if it ever appears anywhere else, where the string parts are on 16th notes at the beginning of it. that anxiousness right now i know you'll shalt quiet my conscience that torments me that's the first two lines and you get dun 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 groups of four beats and then the music gets a little bit calmer into groups of three beats that are just literally triplets instead of 16th notes dun 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 dun, dun. when we get to thy good faith will fulfill what you what thou thyself has said that throughout this wide world no single person shall be lost. Now the music goes down to two pulses, or I should say two beats per pulse, or whatever, you, however you want to think of it. Eighth notes. One, two. But instead enjoy eternal life, provided he be full of faith. Right, which what which brings us back to the text of the first movement, because this is obviously 
going to be in line with Lutheran doctrine. So you're going to get, like we said with Bach cantatas, you're going to get law at the beginning and a little bit more gospel at the end. At the beginning, as you said, Christian, in God's sight, no man shall be justified. That is Lutheran doctrine. If it was just law, all people, no person can fulfill it. That's the point of Jesus' sacrifice in Lutheran doctrine. So then at the end, we get the gospel part of that. Provided each person be full of faith, then he shall enjoy eternal life, right? That becomes the gospel, and that's at the end. And that's where those notes kind of slow down a little bit to the, the neater the neater notes. And after that, right at the very end, they become these little lilting triplets. Bum, mm-hmm. bum, 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 things. And, it's, and then it becomes like nice and pastoral. completely shifted and at the very end they slow down and you could either think of this at you could think of this slowing down as being more peaceful but it's not it doesn't sound like it when you listen to it because of the chromaticism in the very last bars, there's all of a sudden this like interesting chromatic line in the instruments that reminds us of the beginning of the piece again. And yeah. and that's that last line that says, provided he be full of faith. In other words, we just had all this, all this uh, good news, gospel stuff of like, God doesn't want anybody to be lost, but shall enjoy eternal life. But then at the end, it's like a little, there's a, a little asterisk, which is the Lutheran doctrine, right? You have to have faith in order to enjoy eternal life. So the little twist at the end, there's a little twist at the end and he even twists the notes at the end to remind us of the law from the beginning. It's just, it's another perfect example of Bach, the theologian almost, right? I mean, he wasn't a theologian technically, but he, his understanding of theology is like baked into his music. It's not, it's not surface level. It's worked into the structure. Yeah. And this could have just been a harmonization chorale, like most of them are. But he did something special here. He mm-hmm. made it into sort of this heart rate thing and mm-hmm. gradual easing of anxiety and this pulse-based things. Very remarkable. This is where you can see John Elliott Gardner's point about bowing. It's not just that the music is symbolizing that. It's not just good text painting. But when you are listening to it, it literally happens to you. The release of anxiety, if you're, li- and at least that's the intention. It's actually a physiological response you might have to this music, especially if you understand the words going with it in this final chorale. That's what you get. You get that release of anxiety. Also, in Baroque music, usually each piece, each movement, is one tone, one affect. This one is like almost a gradual change throughout from one to another. Yeah, it's a gradient. So unusual. Just structurally unusual. So we must mention the trumpet thing that's in here. Yeah. You saw it if you watched the video. If you watch this cantata video, you'll see the trumpet player playing sort of like a trombone looking slide trumpet over there. Mm-hmm. That part is 
actually high. It is in unison with the oboe one and the violin one part. The instrument being called for, which is used in just a few Bach cantatas and is a very obscure instrument, is called the corno da tirarsi. It's not actually that easy to see in the manuscript that that word is used here, but I think the scholarship supports it. There is a companion video to this cantata by the Netherlands Bach Society in which the trumpet player Robert Van Rijn describes this obscure instrument. Check it out in the link in our episode description. So then why? Why is it scored this way? Why does the top line get an extra strange color? The lower of the two treble lines is still just oboe and violin. Oboe two and violin two parts. And then the viola is just viola, so it's like yeah. stacked up top heavy. Mm-hmm. I think Bach needed the extra weird color to produce a specifically anxious or strained sound to the orchestration. You love to see like Bach, the orchestrator at work, because it's just a special thing. Mm. Baroque composers are not known for their orchestration. Orchestration is pretty straightforward in the Baroque era. But Bach clearly tried to innovate in these ways. And whatever interesting sound was available to him, he used it. Even though this was a good hundred years before the orchestra really exploded. Can you imagine what Bach would have done with a modern symphony orchestra? I know. I was just listening to Schubert on the radio the other day and was kind of lamenting to my wife, like, I think doing this podcast on Bach has made me, unfortunately, like mid-classical and late-classical era a little bit less. Like, I still like those eras. It's kind of silly for me to say that, that, it's, that it's changing, you know, that it's changing my enjoyment of that. But it just makes me think, like, if Bach had access to these larger orchestras, he still, he would have done exactly what Schubert did in that finale of that symphony, whichever one it was I was listening to, and he would have done something more interesting. Harmonically, it was just, like, so more, much more stale. Yeah. And it was actually still pretty cool, though. I, I shouldn't say, I'm not saying it was a bad piece of music. It's just that Bach was so, so extraordinary that I think with those means, he would have done something more interesting than what Schubert did. Maybe he wouldn't have understood. If you literally took Bach and plugged him into that time period, maybe he wouldn't have the understanding of the larger forms of that period, some of the Sonata Allegro type stuff. There's, there's a lot of innovation, so I'm not trying to discount a whole period of Western classical music or anything, but I just think that Bach, in, if he'd grown up in that, would have come up with something a lot more interesting. Yes, because I think we always think of the Baroque period as not one of the orchestra innovation in the colors of the orchestra. But now that we've spent a few years on this podcast and delved into more of the cantatas that have some interesting, obscure instruments in them, we now know that Bach absolutely thought orchestrationally. You always just kind of wonder what he would have done in the future. I wonder what Bach would have done with synthesizers. Yeah. I think he would have loved it. And I think if if any listener is curious about the famous Switched On Bach recording by Wendy Carlos, if any listeners are curious about whether we like that, we like that. <laughs> or I, I like that. Do you <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah. Okay. I think it's awesome. amazing. Now, obviously, it's not authentic, but I think Bach would have loved the spirit of reorchestrating for something so unusual. It's certainly a really cool take on a lot of those classic Bach pieces. Yeah. Let's close with Gardner's closing paragraph about this cantata. 
At this distance, it is easy to empathize with the deeply human way Bach lays out the various choices we all have to face at different stages in our lives. The blind alleys we pursue, the temptations and the price we often have to pay for following or giving into them, the various ploys for easing our troubled consciences. While the word painting here is subtle and the imagery generally easier to grasp than in several other cantatas, much helped by the atypically high quality of the libretto, the real pleasure comes in following Bach's prodigious musical inventiveness as it develops. Those ideas which sparked his fantasy in the first place, and then the techniques used in presenting and elaborating them. And now, here is that introduction to the opening choral movement of the cantata Herr Gehenicht ins Gericht. this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata performed by the Netherlands Bach Society under the direction of Jos van Beethoven, please see the link in the description below. As always, it's a great audio recording, but also a great visual recording. It's, it's great cinematography in this video. What will be the topic of next week's episode? We're going to look at the second of the three organ chorales on Allein Gott in der Höhe sei er. This one is BWV 663. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm -hmm.